Okay, it looks like a big, big group of our church family and friends are gathered together online. I'm just watching you guys out there comment. You know, one of the things that we can do when we meet uh, virtually like this is you've got the ability to, to make comments as we're going through the, the message. Uh, and as we're meeting together, I see a lot of comments popping up on devices right here. By the way, right here, my family's here. Both boys are here. Uh, home from university and uh, the grand puppies here uh, pastor david's here pastor jeremy's here and uh, we are all six feet apart i promise you oh now we're 10 feet apart they just scooted apart a little further so uh we, we're glad that you would welcome us into your living room this morning i've got the book of john open in front of me first john and we're going to continue our study into first john one of the things you're going to discover is um we didn't have to script special passages for today's message. We just keep doing what we're doing, and you're going to find that God is right on time with what he has to say with us. His words are going to address exactly what we're dealing with. Uh, I would never want to make light of any suffering that your family is experiencing right now. But what you're experiencing at your grocery store this week and probably for the first time in your life when you walk in, like I did this week, and there's one package of hot dogs in the entire section, you know, and there's no lunch meat and no bread and no chicken in the fresh meat department and no ground meat. Uh, we're experiencing something for the first time. <clears throat> but I want you to know that our disciples in Nepal, in India, in Nicaragua, in Burma, this is what they've lived with all their lives. And I'm not saying I want it to be that way. I'm just saying we're getting to experience something that our brothers and sisters have experienced really most of their lives. When I walked into the Kroger this week to get a few things that we needed, I, I just had a flashback. I don't know if Claudia and Elijah are tuned in right now from Romania watching our services live or not. But when I walked into Kroger, I was like, I am in Romania right now, post-revolution. It's exactly what the grocery stores looked like, just a few things on the shelves. And uh, it certainly makes uh, picking out your menu much easier. You say, what are we going to have? Well, it looks like we're going to have Spam, Wolf Brand, Chili. And, you know, I mean, there it is. You just take what's there and you go with it and you thank God that uh, he's sustaining you. He's providing for you in the midst of uh, all of this, my message for you this morning is simply this. Our friends have survived for decades in, in worse conditions than we're dealing with right now. And I can assure you that we are going to survive as well because the same God that sustained our brothers and sisters is going to sustain us. And you should just have a nice sense of calm right now and a nice peace flooding your heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit that your Heavenly Father knows what things you have need of and he promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So just don't stress. In the midst of this, though, a lot of questions have arisen this week. Several of them have come to me via messages and texts and, and emails. And uh, questions like, are we living in the last days? Uh, uh, pastor, what, what does this mean? Is Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Donald Trump the Antichrist? I mean, is this it? Is this what we've you know, been looking for? I've had people ask, is this pandemic one of the signs of the end of the world? Um, it, it, in this time of chaos, pastor, where can we find 
anything that we can absolutely trust in to keep us calm and living with confidence and assurance. All of those questions, minus the Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, but all of those questions uh, are going to be answered by the Apostle John this morning in 1 John chapter number 2 and 3 when we go through the scripture in just a moment. Let's begin with this question. Who is the Antichrist? This is one that I've heard several times this week. There is a segment of Christianity uh, that's very fixated on discovering hidden meanings. Uh, they love these prophecy passages. They spend a lot of time in Daniel, especially the book of Revelation, trying to find hidden codes and secret meanings. And we're going to decipher this uh, secret Bible passage. And they do this all in an attempt to try to discover the date of the end of the age and the identity of the Antichrist. Uh, and that's been a thing I've watched throughout uh, several decades of my own life where Bible scholars and Christians have been really, you know, trying to guess who is the Antichrist and when is it all going to happen, this, that, and the other. And I want to say to everyone who's listening, while certainly none of us should be ignorant of what the prophet said, we ought to study the prophecies and we ought to know what those prophecies are. We should weigh or balance their prophetic message against our present mission and we should be focused on our present mission. Our present mission is to share the gospel with a world that needs to hear the message and to make disciples for Jesus Christ and add to the kingdom of God. This is our fixation. This is our obsession. John makes several startling revelations in the text this morning. Let me begin. First John chapter 2, verse number 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, twice in verse 18, John tells us this phrase, it is the last hour. Uh, we are not waiting this morning for this sign to be fulfilled or this sign to be uh, come to pass or this prophecy to happen in order to officially enter the period known as the end times. Listen carefully, we are already living in the last hour of this era. When, when the Bible authors, such as Luke and Peter and Paul and John, are writing the scriptures, they did not envision the last days as some future era that would come. All of those Bible writers spoke of the end times as their present reality. Those verses are listed there in you version from Acts and Hebrews and Peter. Whenever you see end times or last day, they're thinking right now we're in it. Now, remember the Bible writers, I gave you a timeline a few weeks ago, mostly wrote in the third period of the first century, which means most of the writings occurred between 66 AD and 100 AD. They clearly considered the period in which they lived, which for us is 2000 years ago, all the way to this present hour, this big church period to be called the last days. So when someone says, Pastor, are we, you know, is this the last days? Have we come to the last days? Listen, the last days is the current era of salvation history, which began at the ascension of Christ. And that period will run until the return of Jesus Christ, which basically means this. We've been living in the last days all along. 
We're not looking for a period called the last days to arrive. We have been there since the time of Christ. The end times is a reference to the entire church age, which means the church has only existed in the end times. So when John says, in the last days, many deceivers will arise, he's talking about right now. Right now for him was 100 AD. Right now for us is right now for us. Uh, and everywhere in between, there have been many deceivers coming on the scene and pulling people astray. Look at verse 18 again. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. They were making the same mistake that we're making today. Many of these false teachers were saying, well, it's going to happen. The Antichrist is going, the capital A Antichrist is coming this big bad dude and we're looking for him to come and 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 take over the world and and, and really cause this and john's like no no you're you're misunderstanding you you've heard that antichrist is coming john says now many antichrists have little a have already come antichrist a whole bunch of them have already come they're here among us even now john then addresses really another of our misunderstandings uh, the church has maybe been obsessed with trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. But that's not really Bible language. We're, we, we are not looking for the capital A Antichrist because in the Bible there is no singular evil person called the capital A Antichrist. That may come as a shock to you. That's not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, John... Uh, in the letters, the epistles that we're studying, he's the only one who uses this language, Antichrist. It's not found uh, in the other writings. And, and John is saying you're, you're, you're thinking incorrectly. It's not a coming world leader. Many Antichrists are already in the world right now. So since we can have interactive moments, uh, because we're all connected electronically this morning, and you can comment in live, we're going to have just such a moment right now. So I'm going to get your opinion for in a minute, a minute, and I'll see what's going to pop up here on our screens here in the room. Let's get your opinions. Now, I know some of you have very clever wits and good senses of humor. This is not a moment to be witty and clever. I'm not looking for answers like Hillary Clinton or, you know, Donald Trump. Not really. I'm looking for serious answers now, but here's the question. If you lived in the days of Moses, who would have been the Antichrist? Let's see what your answers are. Text, uh, comment them in live right now. If you answered Pharaoh, you got the right answer. Because if you were living during the days of the children of Israel suffering in bondage in Egypt and Moses was about to make the great deliverance, it was Pharaoh who was against God's people and against the working of God in that era. Let's try another one. If you lived in the days of Daniel, you were kidnapped, taken to Babylon, who would have been the Antichrist in the days of Daniel? This one's going to be a little harder to spell. Take a stab at it. We're just now getting lots of pharaohs. Oh, okay. So all right. We're on a delay. Okay. We're on a delay. They're all saying pharaoh, though. Pharaoh's popping up. All right, we're, we're past that now. Let's go to Babylon. Just... Who's Antichrist in, in the days of Daniel? This one's going to be tougher. 
Can I get a Nebuchadnezzar? That's with two Z's, all right? If you get a Nebuchadnezzar, listen, Nebuchadnezzar was this world leader of Babylon, made mighty Babylon and the seventh wonder of the world and all of this, you know, and uh, and he was the one persecuting God's people. Jesse Guy. So Jesse Guy, guy. way to go. Houston, all right, all right. So now this one's going to be even harder. This is going to be a real test. If you lived in the days of the Maccabees, this is the intertestament period between the Old Testament and New Testament. Does anyone know who might have been the Antichrist to that generation? This one's a little tougher. And there could be a couple of answers here, actually. I have no idea. No idea? No idea. Okay. There was this real bad dude named Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrated the temple, offered a sow upon the altar uh, in the temple and boiled it and spread the juice everywhere and defiled everything that was holy and persecuted the Jews. Another answer in the intertestament period would have been Julius Caesar. Another answer would have been Pompey the Great, the general of uh, Rome. Another, an He's the one who conquered Syria and the Middle East. Another answer would have been Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. Uh, all of these people were anti-Christ in that generation. All right, let's, let's go to uh, history you're more familiar with. Let's cross over now into the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the days of Jesus. If you lived in the days of Jesus... Who was anti-Christ? Who was anti-Jesus? Who gave Jesus fits and who did Jesus give fits? Who crucified Jesus? Who was anti-Christ? What did you say, Susan? Pharisees. Pharisees, that would be one answer. Who else? I hope I get a Pontius Pilate somewhere or the Roman government. You know, the Romans crucified Jesus. Pilot, the, yeah. the Pharisees delivered him for, for jealousy. Okay, here's the easy one. If you lived in the period between 1935 and 1945, especially in Europe, who would have been Antichrist? That would be Adolf Hitler. That's the easy one. Could even be maybe a Mussolini. Uh, Hirohito, maybe of Japan. Uh, you know, but they were they were working against uh, the Jews. They worked against Christianity. They were, they were working against uh, the mission of Christ in the generation of 35 to 45. Let's let's come to a little more modern history. If you lived in Iraq, Kuwait, Syria, in this last five ten years, in the present era. If you were a resident of Tikrit or, you know, uh, Nineveh uh, or Syria somewhere, in your generation, who might be Antichrist as a, as a world ruler? I think you could have a couple of answers here, too. Let's see what, let's see what the survey says. Hussein. Yeah, Saddam Hussein. Uh, the butcher of Baghdad. Uh, how about the butcher of Damascus, Bashar al-Assad? In present history, he's been gassing his own people and murdering his own people. Uh, how about the Ayatollahs and the regime from Iran who have been systematically sponsoring terror and wiping out entire communities of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. Listen, Christianity started in the Middle East. 
This is not an American religion. Our faith started in the Middle East, and now Christianity is almost exterminated in the Middle East because of the last decade of uh, this radical, uh, extreme Muslim terrorism that's been slaughtering Christians, the same across North Africa. Okay, I, see, I think you're getting the point now. In every era of our history from Christ to this present hour, there have been people that were antichrist. Many, that's why John says, forget about the antichrist. There's really no such thing. There are many antichrists. And John now makes a big shift and he says for us, adjust your thinking because uh, the antichrists are not all political leaders. As a matter of fact, John goes a completely different direction now. John is not focused for him. Uh, you might think, well, antichrist for John would be the Caesars of Rome who are persecuting Christianity and feeding them to lions and all of this in the Colosseum. But John doesn't go that direction. Instead, what John does is he said, the Antichrist you need to worry about are the ones within the church. Yeah, big gasp right here. Look at verse number 19. They went out from us, but they were not all of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us us so john simply says the antichrists aren't all political leaders they've many of them come from within the church and they've broken away from the body of true believers because they were not true believers and their secession from the church reveals what they truly are as further does their actions to start an alternative group which is opposed to the teaching of John or opposed to the apostolic church community. These breakaway groups, John's calling antichrist. And he's saying they are because they are denying that Jesus was a real human who lived, who died, and who rose again. And because they deny Christ, they are therefore antichrist. Wow, that's a lot. So let's recap. No, our present pandemic is not the end of the world. I don't want to make light of it, but listen to what I'm saying. It's just another day on planet Earth. We've had a lot of pandemics since Christ's appearance. Listen, smallpox, when the European settlers came to these shores, wiped out whole tribes, whole people groups, whole nations on this hemisphere. We've lived through Black Plague, we've lived through SARS, we've lived through Mars, we've lived through all of these uh, pandemics that have arisen, and, and we're going to live right through this one as well. This pandemic is not the beginning of the end. The end, as labeled by the Bible writers, the end times began in 33 AD, and they continue to this present day. Further, no, the church is not looking for the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, the church is not really even focused on that at all. Our obsession as followers of Christ is loving God and loving our fellow man. Our obsession is sharing the gospel and making disciples for Jesus Christ until the kingdom of God is fully established on planet Earth. Each generation has its own antichrist. Each generation has its wars. Each generation has its own pandemics. 
just another day on planet Earth. So John reminds his followers, guys, you know the truth. Don't, don't get hysterical. You know the truth. Let me read verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. The Antichrists deny that Jesus was a man who is also the risen Christ. Those are facts that we know and we hold to be the truth. Notice the two elements in verse 20. We have an anointing and we have knowledge. Let me explain the anointing because that's probably the trickier one. The anointing is nothing more than the reception of the Holy Spirit who came into our lives when we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. For those of you who are journaling, right in the margin right here, Ephesians 1, verse number 13, which explains to us that when we receive Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit came into our lives and sealed our decision to trust Christ, sealed that with his very presence, his residence in our lives. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will, be a, will abide in the Son and the Father. Right in the margin right here by these verses, John chapter number 15. It's the great vine and branches chapter of abiding in Christ. 25, and this is the promise that he, that God made to us. Look at what his promise is eternal life. The truth that John's unfolding is that if we believe in the truth that God sent his son as a real human being to live and die an atoning death for us, if we believe that God raised him from the dead, God promised to us eternal life. Just to reinforce this right in the margin, Romans 10, 9 through 13. These are the verses that Paul wrote. Let me just read verse number nine for you, where Paul says the exact same thing that John just said. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's made us a promise. You believe this truth about Jesus. You put your trust in him and you will be be saved. Let me go back to now 1 John 2.26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from God abides in you. This is the Holy Spirit now. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now let me pause. Doesn't mean nanny nanny boo boo. We're smarter than everybody. I don't need teachers in my life. Sure, we need instructors and teachers. But what he's saying is the ultimate teacher the one who actually wrote the word of God, who inspired it, God himself is living inside of us and he supersedes all other teachers, 
what he says is always true. There is no error in it. His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, when we started 1 John in my overview, I told you that when John writes the letters, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he refers back to the message of Jesus that Jesus is articulating in the gospel of John, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 especially. Those chapters of the gospel of John keep showing up, the teaching keeps showing up here in the letters of John. He's using the teaching of Jesus to reassure uh, his disciples to help these who are confused or being pulled in different directions, pulled away from the church. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14 about the Holy Spirit coming to live in the heart of every believer. Here's what Jesus said, John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, it's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Man, God's promise to us this morning is simply this. When you believe the truth about Christ, my Holy Spirit comes to seal that decision in your heart and live with you forever. The Holy Spirit will abide with us. He will not leave us. Listen, while you're sequestered at home, at times you may feel lonely. But the truth is you're never alone. God's promised, I'll never leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will be with you forever. Till the very day of resurrection, you're going to have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. So John switches a little bit now and he says, since we are God's children, we need to live as we could say, act like God's children, do the things that God's children would do. Let me read verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, if you're journaling, once you get a highlighter or a pen ready and starting here, as we go through the next verses, every time you see the word practice or practices, start underlining or notating because that becomes the recurring theme for a whole section of verses we're about to look at. If you know that he is righteous, verse 29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, of God. Practices is a way of saying living out your faith, living out your confession. If you confess or profess to be Christ's child, then what should flow out of our lives is a lifestyle, a walk that reinforces our confession. And living as God's children is what gives us the confidence uh, to walk freely before God. When, let me say it in two ways. When a believer lives in sin, it erodes that believer's confidence to the point that that believer will begin to doubt their very salvation. But when we as God's children walk in righteousness, it builds confidence in our lives so that we're walking before God with, with 
that boldness to come to him in prayer, that constant song in our heart, his praises on our lips. Prayer doesn't become a thing we do once or twice a day. It becomes a perpetual state of living for us. We're just talking to God all the time. He abides in us. We're very aware of his presence and his voice in our life. And we're just in this sweet, confident fellowship with our Savior. That's what it means to live as God's children. Let, let, let's shift now and let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world doesn't know our father. And when it says world again, it's that cosmos word with nuances. It means world in rebellion against God because they refuse to acknowledge God. Well, they're not going to acknowledge us. If they don't have a relationship with God. They're not going to future point after the resurrection to us when we get to heaven. That's not what John's saying at all. He's saying right now, right now, sequestered in your home, you are God's child and all the benefits and privileges of being God's child are available to you. God's Holy Spirit is living in your heart. He wants to walk with you and fellowship with you. You are never alone. He is here. Live out your faith right where you are. Verse number two says this, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. Now, we're shifting to a little resurrection talk, I think. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I've heard these verses explained many different ways over these decades as a pastor and reading so many theological books and listening to discussions. And I want to be very transparent with you. No one knows the answer. As many books as you read, you'll get that many different opinions about what this verse actually means. Let, let, let's look at it again. It says, we are God's children now, but there's going to be a resurrection. And one day we're going to see him as he is. And when we do, we are going to be changed to be like him. What this verse means is that at some future point, you are God's children now, live it out. Yeah, I know. At some point, we're going to be like him. That's what John is saying. At some point, we're going to undergo a transformation at the resurrection. We don't know fully the extent of that change. For example, we don't know what age we're going to be. Are we going to be frozen at the age we are now? Well, that's going to be weird if you're 90 or if you're three. Uh, so I don't think that's the answer. I mean, we don't know what age we're going to be. We don't, or, or is age not even a thing at that point? We're just timeless, we're mature, uh, and we're fully developed, but we're, the answer is no one knows. We're going to be like Jesus is. Something's going to happen, and we're going to be transformed after resurrection. We don't know fully the extent of the change that we're going to experience. The important point is that we will be resurrected, and we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Something about how he exists eternally, glorified right now in his resurrected state, that is what's going to happen to us. And the implications are, when you see him, you'll be like him. Something about being in the presence of his glory and seeing his glory has a transformative effect on us. 
I just had a little flashback here to Mount Sinai where Moses went up and the glory of God just began to transform even Moses' own appearance. So what John is saying, you are God's children. Make righteousness your practice. Live out your righteousness. Let me read this section of scriptures now starting in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as God is pure. Get ready to start underlining now. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who practices, uh, sorry, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him, seen Christ, nor known Christ. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, in us, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow, there's a lot to unpack right there. I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. Context matters. It's why we do expository Bible studies like this rather than just, you know, proof texting or cherry picking verses and, and always preaching thematically. We do both, but this is very important. Context matters. And the context of these verses is established by the preceding verses. Since we just came through chapter one and chapter two, they set the context for chapter three. What did we learn in chapter one and chapter two? Uh, John is not saying that Christians do not sin. As a matter of fact, in chapter one, he said, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying. If we say we don't have sin, we make God a liar. That's the context of this. So John's not saying that Christians don't sin. Neither is John saying that God expects his children to be sinless. That's chapter two. Don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here's what God expects, which is clear from what John is writing. That's why he keeps using this word practice over and over again. It has to do with motive. It has to do with how we uh, see our own lifestyle being lived out. Here's what it means. God expects us to try not to sin. God expects us to try to live out righteousness. But if we sin along the way, we have an advocate and we have the promise of forgiveness right in the margin. 1 John 1, 7, comma, 1 John 1, 9. Here they come into play again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When believers sin, we are not proud of our sin. 
When believers sin, we're ashamed of our sin. We do not plan to continue in our sin. We're not making new plans to sin. Now, as a matter of fact, we're ashamed. And, and what we do when we are conscious that we've sinned, when we feel that conviction in our hearts or our conscience that we've sinned, immediately we go to God and we confess our sin in order to find accountability and to find that cleansing and forgiveness that God promised to us in 1 John 1, 9. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, this is the preceding verses, he abides in you, he abides in you, he abides in you. You abide in him. Because there's this duality of God living in us and we're living, our lives are sustained in him, we no longer have a disposition to want to practice sin as our normal lifestyle. Remember, in any family, children will do the wrong thing from time to time. In any family, it takes time for children to overcome inappropriate behavior while they are maturing. None of these failures disqualifies a child from being a part of a family. And we don't cast our children out for being children. That's what's clear. Maybe this is a good reminder for all of us to remember to balance instruction and expectations with understanding and forgiveness. You say, Pastor, why should I do that? Because that's the way God's dealing with his children. Yes, he has high expectations. He wants us to try to live in righteousness, but he knows. He knows what we're really capable of and he knows we're going to sin. So if we sin, I would say when we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and we can call upon him and ask for forgiveness. And he will deal with us, even though we've fallen short of his expectations as our heavenly father, he will not deal with us out of wrath. He'll deal with us in an understanding and a, and a forgiving way. For sake of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 16 where John now defines love. Let, let me talk through this verse 16, 17, and 18. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, you have stuff. We've got food in the pantry, we've got clothes in the closet, we have a couple dollars in the bank. We have the world's goods and we see our brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? We got last verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but let's love in deed, in action, and in truth. Somewhere notate these three verses, maybe put a star there or circle these three verses and look back at them later this week. And what I'd like to ask, ask each member to do this week is to find a way to live out this week, verse 16, 17, and 18. Love is defined here as being like Christ, means laying down your life for someone else. It doesn't mean you know, jumping in front of a bullet or a blade. That's, that's not the implication here. The implication means sacrificially sharing our lives and our goods, our material goods, being inconvenienced, if you would, uh, 
expending effort and energy to help our brothers and sisters in need. Real love is not a feeling. It's not just an emotion. Real love, as defined in Scripture, must have actions. So I want to challenge you right now. The Holy Spirit speak into your heart. I know many of you have reached out to me this week already and said, I'm here. I can help people. You know, give me some guidance on what to do. Since we can comment in live right now, maybe there's something that's been on your heart earlier in the, in the previous days, or maybe it's just rising to the surface of your heart right now. And God's saying to you, this is something I want you to do. I want you to use your comments right now. Fill in the blank to this sentence. This week, I will show love by sending a letter, sending a card, sending some texts, checking on some people, delivering groceries, mowing someone's lawn, washing somebody's car, showing love. How? This week, I will show love in this way. If God's laid something on your heart that you need to do, why don't you go ahead and just put it out there where the whole world can see it? Provides that sense of accountability where we can later this week say, hey, did you do this? Hey, here's something. Hey, I heard about somebody who has a need. Can you step up and meet this need? If God's laying something specific on your heart, go ahead and be accountable right now and say, this week I'm going to do this as a definitive action to be like Christ and live out my righteousness and be what he's called me to be. All right, let me, let me close with this last section of scriptures this morning where John begins to say to us, whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with in your own life, you can trust in God's love. Let me read verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and we shall reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. Now, this is something we've talked about. It's not referring to the Ten Commandments. He's going to define it right here. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. There's that duality. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In any family, it is a tragedy for children to grow up without feeling their parents' love. Because nothing is more formative in our lives than parental love. The other side of that coin is nothing is more destructive in our lives than a lack of feeling parental love. The tragedy is that an unloved child does not remain a child. An unloved child grows up into adulthood bearing the consequences of feeling unloved as a child. And those long-term consequences will inevitably be that as adults, they will deal with a constant sense of insecurity throughout their adult lives, all because they didn't feel love from their parents as they were developing. Knowing this profound truth, 
John wants to eliminate any chance that you will grow up doubting God's love for you. So here's what John is saying to us. You can trust in God's love. Listen, whatever chaos is going on around us, all this false information that's going on Facebook and, you know, share this immediately with a thousand people because the world's ending. No, it's nonsense. Just forget that. When the world is panicking, God's people need to be calm. You can trust in God's love. You don't need to be insecure because God's love is everlasting. It is merciful. It is filled with grace. Knowing that God knows everything about you, that he passionately loves you, should fill your life with overflowing confidence. He knows you're trying. You say, Pastor, I said, yeah, I know that. So did I. But he knows we're trying. This is what he wants. We're not trying to practice sin. We're trying to practice righteousness. But sometimes we fall. He knows that. He knows you're trying. He knows you're making efforts. And here's the biggie. God's cheering for you. He gave you his spirit to live inside you, to be a teacher and to be a guide, to help you be able to live out the righteousness he has for you. Believing on Jesus Christ and loving one another, those are the behaviors of one who is a child of Jesus Christ. Is the world ending? Not today. Probably not this week. It's all going to be good. Is the Antichrist here? Well, I'm sure there's been an Antichrist of some kind in every generation since Jesus Christ himself. Is Corona the beginning of the end? I don't want to make light of it. Some of us are going to get sick. But God's going to be with us. No, Corona is not the beginning of the end. It's just business as usual on planet Earth for another week and another day. What I want you to take away this morning is simply this. God is going to take care of you. You have the truth. You know that you have the Holy Spirit. You are God's child. And God is saying to us this morning, my child, live like I love you. You can trust in my love. Pastor David's going to come and and close us in a word of prayer. Pastor David, come and hang out with me right here. When we close the service in just a few minutes, uh, all types of uh, preschool and and elementary and youth links go go live. Uh, I'm really excited about Tuesday night story time. Uh, with Miss Eric. I think that's going to be fun. I may tune in just to get my bedtime story. Uh, uh, I think that's happening at seven, so it may be an early night. Uh, Wednesday night, you'll hear from us live. We'll be in touch with you throughout the week. Uh, You've got great leaders who love you, proud of our staff who've done a great job, our deacon families, husbands and wives, and they're all ministering to our people. You're going to be well cared for not just because we're providing care for you as a church family, but because you're God's child. Remember this week, live like he loves you. Pastor David, close us in prayer. All right. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the opportunity, um, even in this weirdness of the Corona stuff, to, to still meet in this online community. And we thank you for all those who've joined in today and we pray blessing over all of those um, who weren't able to. 
Um, we pray today specifically, God, that we would put your love, we put our trust in your love this week, and that we would begin to pursue and practice righteousness just as we've heard this morning. Father, that we begin to apply um, the spiritual disciplines. We begin to read our word and pray and be specific and honed in about the, the ways in which we can begin to apply your word in our lives. This week, give us strength, give us peace, and keep us safe as we uh, go about our, our, our work, or if we're at home with the kids or whatever, keep us safe this week and help us to come back and join again next week with one another. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday and maybe throughout the week.